So we're continuing our Tough Question series. You probably picked up a copy of the notes. Uh, we're, at, we're talking about a question today that I get quite often, and that is, how did people get to heaven before Jesus? And that's a question that matters but beyond just our ordinary curiosity. The gospel is really at stake in this question, because if our answer to that question is, well, uh, Jesus wasn't there yet to save us from our sins, so those people just had to do their best to live a good life and hope that was good enough. If that's our answer, then one of two things is true. Either nobody who lived before Jesus is in heaven now, right? Because nobody, all, all of us fall short. Or if you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm sure people like Moses and like Deborah and like, uh, like Elijah and like David, I'm sure they're there because they lived good lives. Well, then what are you saying? You're saying... It is possible to get to heaven without Jesus. It is possible to live a good enough life. Therefore, does that mean there are people today who don't need Jesus to get them into heaven? See, you see what I mean? This question is important beyond just our curiosity. The gospel is at stake. And I need to point out two things. Number one, the Bible never directly addresses this. There's not a single place in the Bible where it says, and for instance, Samuel is in heaven today because... It doesn't say that. We don't know. Um, nor, for that matter, nor does, is there anywhere in the Bible that tells us definitively how we can decide whether someone else is going to heaven. Y'all realize that, don't you? And I, I understand that we as Christians, this is something we spend an inordinate amount of time on, is trying to, to judge someone else's salvation. Whether it's, well, you know, that person, that famous person claims to be a Christian, but I know they're guilty of this sin or that sin, so do you think they can really be saved? Or, uh, you know, I've got this friend that goes to this church over there, and they call themselves Christians, but they believe this on that particular doctrine. That's pretty important. So if they believe something that I know is wrong, can they really be saved? And we sit there and we play those games all the time. When the Bible never tells us how to ascertain whether or not someone else is saved, what the Bible does tell us is, here's how to know you are saved. Here's how to know for sure that you belong to God, that your sins are forgiven, that, that uh, your destiny is eternal life with Him. The Bible does command us to be concerned about the salvation of others and to share that message with Him. I wish we spent as much time doing that as we do speculating about whether or not they're going to heaven. I think a lot of our speculating is just a result of our pride and our self-righteousness, and we like being in the position of saying, well, we're the ones who are really in, and then we get to decide who's in and who's out. So the Bible never directly addresses this question, but we do know that there are some people from the Old Testament era who are in heaven today. Just for one example, in your notes, I've got this for you. Jesus goes up onto the, the Mount of Transfiguration, right? His his clothes and his skin are transfigured. He becomes blinding white before the three disciples who went with him, Peter, James, and John. And who appears there, standing there, talking to him? Moses and Elijah. I've always wondered, how did Peter, James, and John know it was Moses and Elijah? Was it, did Jesus introduce them? Did they just know, did the Holy Spirit reveal it to them? But the, the point is that, that those two men stood there talking to Jesus on the top of the mountain. And Luke even tells us what they were talking about. He said they were discussing Jesus' departure, which he was soon uh, to experience in Jerusalem. In a sense, I think it was Jesus, those two, Moses and Elijah, saying, okay, Lord, you're about to go to the cross, and, and we're, we're just kind of, we want to encourage you. I think that was God's way of encouraging his son. So Moses and Elijah are in heaven now. And then there's this. Then there's our main text for tonight, Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Now, most of you know Hebrews 11 is the chapter about faith. And it's, it, it's God's, it, he, the author of Hebrews is defining for us what real faith looks like by giving us examples from the scriptures, specifically from the Old Testament. And by the time we get to verse 13, he's already mentioned Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. He'll go on to mention several other Old Testament figures. And his point is, God has prepared for them a city. They have been looking for a better world. They had, their hope is in something better than what they have here, and God has prepared for them a city. In other words, those people are in heaven. But why? Well, again, it never says directly, but let's look at three of the people in that chapter real specifically. Number one, there's Abraham. In Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10, mention Abraham. It says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is referring to what Abraham experienced in, in Genesis 12. We talked about this on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. God comes to Abraham, a man who has grown up in the city of Ur in modern-day Iraq, uh, one of the great cities of the ancient world. Uh, he's presently living in Haran in, in current-day uh, Turkey. And God says, I want you to leave where you are now and go to a city I will show you. And then he promises, I'll make you a great nation. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And all families of the world will be blessed through you. Now think about what Abraham didn't know at that point. He didn't know where he was going. God didn't tell him. He said, go to the place where I will show you. He didn't know what would happen when he got there. He didn't know how he would become a great nation since by this time he was well into his later years and he and his wife had never been able to have children. It seemed pretty unlikely, but Abraham made that decision to trust God and to say, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to go with his plan. I'm going to do what he says. And here's what Paul says about him in Romans 4, about, specifically about that decision to trust God. Romans 4, based, Romans 4 is all about Abraham as an example of saving faith. But here's, here's the pertinent passage I want you to look at. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what is Paul saying about Abraham in Romans 4? He's saying Abraham never did one single thing that made him right with God. He never, it wasn't because he gave a lot of money. Remember the story of him giving 10% to Melchizedek as a tithe? It wasn't because um, he conquered lands. It wasn't because he obeyed commandments. It wasn't because uh, he prayed great prayers or, or told people about the Lord. What made Abraham righteous was he believed. God said, do this. And Abraham, Abraham said, I'm going to choose God's path rather than my own. And that was his salvation. He believed. He trusted. The point 
Paul is making is God's not impressed with our works. He just wants our trust, our faith. So that's the story of Abraham. And then Moses is the next guy who's mentioned in, in Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ. That's an interesting way to say it, since Jesus hadn't been born and wouldn't be born for another thousand plus years. We'll come to why it says that, I think, in a moment. But just think about the story of Moses. Moses was raised in the palace of Egypt. He was the adopted son of the daughter of Pharaoh. She found him in that reed basket floating in the Nile. She raised him up as her own. He, I am sure, grew up in great privilege. And yet there came a day when he said, no, I am not an Egyptian. I am an Israelite. And he walked away from the palace. And then later on, he came back and and stood up for God's people at God's command. He made the decision. I'm going to choose God instead of my own path. And then there's Rahab, Hebrews 11.31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had, been, she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, you might say that's pretty unfair of the author of Hebrews to label her that way. After all, he doesn't say Abraham the, the liar or Abraham the adulterer, although he was guilty of both. He didn't say Moses the murderer, although Moses was a murderer. Moses the man with a short fuse, although he definitely was that. But here he turns around and calls Rahab, Rahab the prostitute. Why does he do that? It's not a slander. It's supposed to say, look what God can do. Here's a woman the world had given up on. Here's a woman that had given up on herself. And now she's in this chapter next to Moses and and Abraham. A foreigner, not an Israelite, and yet she's considered one of the great heroes of faith. And what's the story of of Rahab? Rahab uh, was not just a prostitute, but uh, ran a brothel. And into her brothel one day walked two Israelite men. Again, I've always wondered how those Israelite men explained that story to their wives, right? (laughs) We were running from those soldiers. They were after us. And then we ran into this brothel. Wait, 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 wait a second. What did you We can imagine. The point is, Jericho was the first city the Israelites had to conquer in the promised land. And it was walled. It wasn't so easy. You couldn't just invade. You had to climb those walls unless God had a different plan, which he did. Moses sent those two men to spy out the land. I think more than anything to bring back a good report so the people would get excited. But they were in trouble. They were about to be captured. They were hidden by this woman, Rahab. She lied to protect them. She risked her own life to keep them alive. And you might wonder, why would you do such a thing? I mean, that is treason against your own people. And she explained it in Joshua 2, 8 through 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. 
And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now this is the Old Testament, but that sounds an awful lot like a conversion story. She's saying, I've been, I've been raised to believe in these Canaanite gods, but now I know they're not gods at all because I've heard about what you did, what your God did in Egypt. I've heard about what he did for you in the wilderness on the way here when this race of former slaves defeated well-trained armies. I, I trust your God and not my own. Now, I bet every person in this room knew every one of those stories well enough to tell it at least as well as I did. So I haven't told you anything yet you don't know. Question is, what do those three people have in common? So three things. Number one, they recognized they couldn't save themselves. Number two, they put their hope in God, the God of Israel, for salvation. And number three, their faith was real as indicated by their actions. What do I mean by that? Well, think about it. Abraham didn't just say to God, okay, Lord, I believe you. He actually had to take action. He actually left his home in Haran and went to Canaan. Moses left the palace, and then later when God came to him in the, in the wilderness of Midian and said, go and, and confront Pharaoh, he dithered and he made excuses, but he ended up saying, yes, I will do what you say, Lord. Rahab rejected her people, rejected her gods. She said, I will, I will serve your God the rest of my days, just spare me. And they did don't get me wrong. These people were not saved by their works. What I'm saying is their works were an indication their faith was real. James, brother of our Lord, talks about this in the book of James. He says, faith without works is dead. Again, faith don't, uh, works don't save us, but if you have faith without works, it's no faith at all. It's very easy for someone to say, I believe. It's very easy for someone to undergo baptism, to walk an aisle, to pray a prayer. But if, if there's real salvation, if that belief that you profess is real, then there will be a change of heart. There will be a, a corresponding fruit or corresponding works in your life. We all know. We've all seen it. And we've all seen the lack of it in some people who've professed faith and then go on living the way they always did. So these three people, their, their faith was real and it was backed up by action. So, so think about it this way. Here's another way to think about it. Uh, imagine a woman is in her home and she sees that it, it hasn't stopped raining for a while. Floodwaters are coming. She becomes concerned. The floodwaters rise. They get into her house. She doesn't know what to do. She climbs up onto a roof. She has a bed sheet, and on that bed sheet she writes, help me someone, please. And she waits. And after a couple of hours, a helicopter hovers over her house. And a man descends on a cord from that helicopter. And he says, ma'am, we saw your signal. We're here to rescue you. All you need to do is just put your arms around my neck and they'll pull us in and you'll be saved. Now, is she saved because she wrote the message on the bed sheet? Nope. She's only saved if she gets in the helicopter. That's saving faith. There's a lot of people in our world that don't understand that. A lot of people in churches 
who think, well, I prayed a prayer. I did a ritual. I, I, I went through these steps. Therefore, I belong to God. You still haven't gotten in the chopper. Your life hasn't changed. You haven't given yourself to him. That's not saving faith. So back to our question. How did people before Jesus get to heaven? Well, let me tell you a story real quick. So when I was in my late 20s, I got sick. I didn't know what was wrong with me, but over a period of months, I just got progressively sicker. Uh, never sick enough that I had to go to the hospital, never sick enough that I couldn't go to work, but it was just every day I felt bad, and the next day I'd feel worse. At some point, at some point in the day, I'd feel rotten, and it was usually after I'd eaten. Um, it got to the point where I didn't like to leave, get very far from home. You know, I lived right next to the church, so that wasn't a problem, but didn't want to go anywhere, certainly didn't want to go out to eat because I wanted to be close to home. If I started feeling bad, I lost weight. I wasn't all that big to begin with, but now I really got, got well, poor looking. Um, finally, some friends came to me and they said, you need to go see a gastroenterologist. First of all, you need to learn how to pronounce gastroenterologist, but you have, to, you have to go see one and we've got a good one for you. And I went and I saw this man. And he diagnosed me after a lot of tests. He, said, he found that there was a bacteria in me that I'd never heard of. Very, very... A damaging thing that needed to be treated. And he gave me some medicines that I had never heard of before that either. Now, kind of a weird way to get around this is I trusted in that doctor and he rescued me with things I didn't even know about. I didn't know what was wrong with me and I didn't know what could save me. I just put my trust in him and he brought me healing. So I think about I think about that and I think about verse 26 when it says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. How did Moses trust in Christ when he'd never heard of Christ? Well, because he went to God. He went to God the Father. He didn't know there was someday going to be a person named Jesus. He didn't know that someday that person named Jesus would come and die for our sins. He didn't even know that his his basic problem was sin. All he knew was, I can't save myself. I'm going to go with God. And just like that doctor prescribed stuff that I'd never heard of, and it brought me healing, God brought to Moses, to Abraham, to Rahab, to every person who ever lived before, God, before Jesus arrived, brought to all of those people who trusted in him more than themselves, brought to them salvation through a Savior, they never personally met until they got to heaven. I believe that's how people in the Old Testament era got saved. Because they believed in something they never yet saw. They believed in God, that He would provide, and God provided. So Hebrews 11 leads into Hebrews 12, and two of my favorite verses in the Bible, and this is what we'll close with. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and there's so much about those two verses I love. I, I, I just It's hard to restrict myself to one, but I, I just want to point out that, that phrase, 
we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. It's talking about the people in Hebrews 11. I mean, remember, there weren't any verses and chapters when the biblical writers wrote. So it just flowed right from one to the other. He's saying, those people, those Old Testament saints are watching us now. They are our witnesses. What are they saying to us? What do they say to you? How are they urging you on to run the race more faithfully? Think about the trust that they had in a Savior they never met. Think of all that we have that they don't. We have knowledge of the gospel. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us daily. We have the church of the living God. Brothers and sisters who walk the race before us or or alongside us every day. For that matter, we've got freedom of, of religion. We've got so many things they don't. Part of me thinks they're saying, what's the matter with you? What I wouldn't have done with half of what you have. But what are they saying to you? How do they encourage you? Run the race uh, with endurance as Christ did before us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the example you set for us. I thank you, Lord, that you are the one and only Savior. Lord, that seems restrictive to some. But Lord, we thank you that you are a Savior, that you provided us with salvation. And I pray, Lord, that we would run our race well, that we would, as we study your word, be inspired by the stories that we find in it to live the life that draws others to you and that produces fruit all around us. For it's in the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen.